Almighty God, we thank you for your word, your holy and inspired word. And we ask now, Lord, as your word inspects us, you would grant us the grace and the wisdom to understand. Please grant me the grace, Lord, as your appointed pastor of this church, that I might preach as Paul admonished the Corinthians, the simplicity of Christ, and grant my brothers and sisters the grace that they need to understand what you would have them to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 7, just listen, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Pretty familiar passage of scripture. At least some of the imagery is wolves in sheep's clothing. That phrase is kind of spilled over into our language where we say something like that. Oh, that's a that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And even if you don't know that those words actually came from the mouth of the incarnate Christ, uh, people understand what it means. That the person isn't what they appear to be. A sheep and a wolf, they're, they're a very different breed of animal. They have a tendency not to get along very well. Wolves find sheep and lambs to be uh, extremely tasty hors d'oeuvres, and sheep are extremely afraid of wolves. And the coats that they wear are very different. You can have a, a shearling jacket made from sheep's wool or a sweater made from sheep's wool, I don't think in all my years in the clothing business in New Jersey I ever saw a sweater or a suit made from wolf's hair. I don't think uh, it's actually a very fine type of thing to use. Usually wool or lamb or something of that nature, but wolf skin? No. Coyote coat I saw once, but not wolf. When you hear the word wolf, it just has a certain image comes to your mind, doesn't it? Of a vicious beast that's it um, doesn't fight fair. They roam in packs, and they attack in packs. They don't fight fair. Nature is cruel. They don't fight one-on-one like mighty knights in medieval armor. They, they sneak up on their prey and grab the weakest one in the flock. Right? The flock runs away, and well, a wolf can run for miles and miles and miles. And Well, the little lamb doesn't have to run very far before the leg is taken out and the rest of the wolf, wolf pack descends on it and you see the wolves just tearing into their prey. It's not a very um, pleasant image. Wolves and sheep. And Jesus here is warning the people, beware of false prophets. A particular type of person is in view here. A false prophet. Someone who is teaching the wrong doctrine. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. What is a false prophet? It's not hard to figure out. false prophet is someone who basically said, this is what the Lord says. 
Therefore, this is what you should believe. And the message itself is false. Now, when the Apostle Paul was imprisoned the first time, he pointed out in one of his letters that there is a whole group of people who were preaching the gospel just to make him look bad. I know that strikes us as odd, but there were. There was jealousy in the early church. And this group of men were preaching the gospel in order to bring more oppression and persecution onto Paul. We don't know exactly how that played out, but it's there in the scriptures. And Paul does not upgrade them for even a moment. He said, basically, I don't care if they're trying to give me a hard time through this. As long as Christ is preached, then I'll be happy. Paul did not care about these enemies of his. He didn't mind that they were trying to hurt him as long as they weren't misleading the flock of God. As long as they were preaching the right message. He did not care one iota about their motive. They had evil motives, but the message was good, so therefore Paul said, not a problem. I don't care why they're preaching Christ. And that's code for Paul. When Paul says preaching Christ, he's talking about the basic message of salvation. He didn't care what their motives were as long as the message was okay. He also had another set of enemies called the Judaizers. They had very good motives. They were early ethnic Jewish Christians who were extremely confused, and understandably so, about how the Old Testament law would now function in the New Testament economy. Because the first converts to Christianity were Jews. That's a pretty seamless transition. The Messiah's arrived. But now what do you do when all kinds of Gentiles come flooding into the church? Okay, do the men have to be circumcised? Um, are the women allowed in the synagogues? Um, are, are they allowed to you know, they've been eating bacon all this time or that, you know, do they can we all eat bacon now? Can we all eat shellfish? The food laws, the ceremonial laws, they were concerned. So these Judaizers had the right motives. They were actually trying to figure out how to blend, so to speak, the old covenant law under the veil of the new covenant. Their motives were good, and Paul had nothing but horrific things to say about them. Because their message was, to the Gentiles, not a problem. You can come into the covenant but you boys have to line up at the door and be circumcised, and you cannot, you cannot eat any more bacon. No more shellfish. You have to observe the food laws. And Paul, Paul gave them the most horrific thing he could ever say. In the book of Galatians, he says, if they're preaching that, then they are anathema to God. They are cursed. They had good motives, but their message was wrong. A false prophet the message has got to be wrong in order for the person to be classified as a false prophet. Now, in this instance, very often you get the two, the two worst things happening. You have people with a bad message and bad motives. That's a very nasty combination. That's a real nasty combination. And Jesus is saying here, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're trying to hide who they are. They come to you dressed nicely. They come to you probably with 
smooth language. They come to you with soothing language, a message of comfort, a message of hope. Who doesn't want to keep hope alive in our day and age? But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Now, when you think of a ravenous wolf, I just gave you the picture. It's not a nice picture. It's a wild beast that rips its prey to shreds. That's what these false prophets do to God's people. And that's why we need to be very careful about them. And they are around still today. They will always be around until Christ comes back. But there's a lot of hope in this passage. You will know them by their fruits. There's the hope. You'll know them by their fruits. And then he gives all of this um, agricultural examples. Rhetorical questions. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously, no, you don't. And then he gives these warnings. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You can tell. It's a lousy apple. You buy apples from the store and you come home and you know the, the rotten one always seems to be packed in the middle of the batch. It's never right out front. And you, you open them up and you grab them and say, oh, that, one, that one's not good. That apple's rotten. How do you know it's rotten? Well, it feels rotten. It looks rotten. It smells rotten. And you're not going to bite it because you know it will taste rotten. And you throw it out. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And bad trees can't bear good fruits. And then another ominous message. That if a tree does not bear good fruit, God will cut it down and throw it into the fire. And therefore by their fruits you will know them. We can know who's on the Lord's side and who's not, with a few very easy tests. Are they bearing fruit? Okay. How do we tell if an apple tree is bearing apples? You look at it. There's no apples, and you say, that's an apple tree. And you say, well, that's interesting. Those those look like peaches to me. That's that's not an apple tree. Not an apple tree. Wrong fruit. Or you look at an apple, someone says, look at my apple tree. And you're like, horse apples. Those don't look very appetizing. You just grab those and, and, and feed them to the mules, feed them to horses, throw them to the pigs. They, these don't look edible for human consumption. They're just, they're just nasty, crab apple kind of looking things. You don't want them. This is the hope in this message. That a Christian can know the truth that a Christian can know who is a false prophet and who isn't, and that it doesn't take a lot of theological genius to figure it out. The first thing to figure out is, are they bearing fruit? Now we have to ask, okay, this is obviously an agricultural metaphor. He's not talking about apples and pears and peaches and bananas and grapes here. He's talking about spiritual fruit. Do you know where you can figure out what spiritual fruit is in the Bible? If I were to ask you, hey, Where do we find out about what good spiritual fruit looks like? Would you know where to actually turn in your Bible and find out? I see a couple of the kids nodding their head, yes. 
It's in the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, humility or long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So if you're talking with someone and they're alleging themselves to be a Christian teacher and there's just no love there at all, I mean none, you got yourself a problem. There's no patience there, no long-suffering. There's a problem. There's no self-control there. And these things kind of have a tendency to come up in pairs. You know? Impatient people, generally speaking, they don't have self-control over themselves. They go off at the handle. They go crazy on people. Now, we all have moments of non-self-control. We all have moments of non-love. But Paul is talking about the general tenor of a person's life. If love is completely and conspicuously absent from a person's life, then we do well to avoid them. And if love and self-control and peace and patience, joy, if these elements are conspicuously absent continually from a person's life, then you certainly don't want them in a pulpit. You just don't. It's not the place for them. And God has a way of thinning out his herd. The message has got to be correct, though. The message has got to square with what the Bible teaches. Can you tell a wolf in sheep's clothing from a wounded sheep? There's a difference. If you have a wounded sheep, they're probably going to act a little, little weird. I've never dealt with one, but I'm going to assume that if you have a sheep that has been attacked and is wounded, that it's going to act a little skittish. You know, if you, if you adopt a, a, a dog, if you adopt a dog that has been abused, they, you usually tell your visitors, this is, this is a dog that we rescued, so don't pet it. Okay, don't pet it. He's a good dog, but he likes being petted by two people. And you're not one of them. So just leave them alone. Be wary. There's a difference between that and an animal that is just vicious from the litter, so to speak. Can you tell a wolf in sheep's clothing from a wounded sheep? It's a fine pastoral art. It really is. It's difficult sometimes. It does take some practice. There are a lot of wolves in the world, brothers and sisters. And I know that you have a lot of expectations from me as your pastor. Little side causeway here. You know what my main function is? My, how I, I see particular aspects of my ministry with a clarity that, that someone in the pulpit, someone in the pew cannot, cannot see. I see my first duty to protect you from wolves. To make sure that you know the truth. So that if a wolf comes up, no matter how finely clothed they are, that you'll be able to tell that they're not telling you the truth. That, as I see, is my first and highest function. As a watchman. Ezekiel called himself a watchman on the tower. And the 
parable in Ezekiel says, you know, if you have a watchman on the tower, and in those days you had fortified cities, if you have a watchman on the tower, and he sees the enemy coming and does not tell everybody, well, the blood of the people will be on that watchman. But if you have the watchman up in the tower, and the enemy comes and he starts ringing the bell and screaming, and the people stay asleep, then the people's blood is going to be on them. So if sometimes your pastor here sounds like he's ringing, ringing warning bells an awful lot, let me just say that I want to be a faithful watchman and don't want to have anybody's blood on my hands. I have to tell you, that's wrong. That's wrong teaching. Well, how do you know that? Well, if you have 25 years, I can teach you. And I beg people, just please, just trust me for the time being. There's something rotten about that teaching. Now, let me just share a few big, gigantic wolves in sheep clothing in our culture. Because what I want to focus on here in the rest of the sermon is this part of the passage that says, you will know them. A lot of Christians are severely lacking in knowledge, in spiritual discernment. And that pains me. And let me just say this very clearly. Many of you, after so many years in a few of this church or other churches, um, should have a little bit more knowledge than you do. should be a little bit more spiritually discerning, a little less spiritually gullible than some of you are now. All I can do is present you with opportunities to learn. I, I can't actually make you learn. It's painful, but that's, that's the reality of the situation. One of the biggest, most awful teachings in our world, really just in America and England and parts of Australia, is what's called the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. Here's how it works. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, everything is just going to come up roses for you. If you just have enough faith, you will be wealthy. Your fortune is out there, brother. Can you feel it? Your fortune's out there, sister. If you haven't found it yet, you just don't believe enough. Let me tell you something. Those churches, they are packed. Because that's a nice message. That's called treasure hunting. I want that key. I want that key. Do you want to be rich? I know you're saying no. Well, do you want to be poor? No. If you had to choose, which one would you pick? I'm going to take a guess. You're going to go with the riches. So those churches, that's a very appealing message. You know where it's really appealing? In the inner city. Where people are dirt poor. Where people have known nothing but poverty. And now that message is seeping into the third world. Where living in the ghetto in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia would be considered living in a palace into the third world where you live on four or five hundred dollars a year, you hear about this magic man, Jesus. And part of the package is, of course, you know, if you don't tithe properly to this local ministry, you'll never find your fortune. So when that basket comes around, you better put your dollars in because if you put ten in, God's going to give you twelve back. That's a message from the lie of the pit of hell. Nowhere in the scriptures does God guarantee that you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise in this world. A corollary of that is the health aspect. If you have just enough faith, you'll be healthy. You have just enough faith, that leukemia will leave you. 
You have just enough faith. Receive your sight back. Faith healers, you see them all the time. And they're very good at curing people of headaches. They're very good at curing people of backaches. How can you possibly as a doctor, and I'm not a doctor, how can you possibly as a doctor know if someone has a headache unless they just tell you my head's throbbing? But they could be lying, right? I have a headache. Is there a test you can run for a headache? Backache? Emotional distress? They never heal people of objective things like, hey, you don't have an arm. You don't have an arm. That's pretty obvious to see. Grow the arm back and I will believe you. Grow the arm back like Jesus did. When Jesus healed people, there was no waiting period. Okay, There was no waiting period. The arm grows back. Lazarus comes out of the grave. And what's interesting is that that generation still didn't believe. He brought a man back from the dead and they still didn't believe. These faith healers are liars. That doesn't, I'm not going to say that God does not heal people. I got healed of a serious back injury. I definitely did. But God didn't heal me willy-nilly. He used that to, I'll be honest with you, to slap me in the head and say, okay, it's time to go back to seminary. You've been studying English for six years, and that was fun. It's helped you going to be a better writer and reader, but that's not what you're called to do. You have to go to seminary. I was like, really? Really? I'm going to pay for seminary. Someone will pay for my graduate program in English. There's money there. Nope. Back is okay now. Health and wealth. It's terrible. It's an awful message. And it cripples people's lives. Are you wise enough? Now that one might be a little obvious. There's other more subtle ones. Man, how controversial do I want to get here? Can I get an amen on controversy? Truth. What? Truth. Truth. God has two people, you know. He's got the church and he's got Israel. He's got two people. If you have two people, you have to have two plans. That's really popular in our world. Really popular in our circles. There's only one problem. You can't prove it from the scriptures. You can actually prove the exact opposite. Romans 11 makes it pretty clear that there is one olive tree. Yes, the ethnic Jews are considered natural olive branches and we Gentiles are considered wild olive branches. That's no, no question about that. But there is one covenant and one covenant people and one way to get saved. Do you, you're not going to believe this, but there's a number of insane people who think they're Christians who are not. I'm talking about pastors now who actually believe and are on record as saying that a Jew can be saved by keeping the law of Moses. Good luck with that. John Hagee, San Antonio, Texas. He's on TV. Do you realize how crazy that is? To tell somebody that if they obey the law of Moses, they can be saved. Imagine me telling that to an ethnic Jew right now. Here's the one big problem. They haven't done the Day of Atonement right in 2,000 years. They don't have a high priest. 
if you haven't read through the book of Leviticus, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of sacrifices there. They don't do them anymore. Why? Because they don't know who the tribe of Levi is. Why? Because God had them, Romans, burn all the records. They can't figure it out. They can't have... You can't obey the law of Moses because you have to do those sacrifices. We're commanded to observe this Lord's table. If you go to a Christian church and they never absorb the Lord's Supper, something is wrong. Something is wrong. If you never see a baptism happen, something is wrong. If you go to a Jewish nation and there is no animal sacrifices going on, then you don't actually have Judaism. It's really not the Jewish religion. It's completely man-made. So the way my friends in New Jersey who were Jews, the way they would do the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the highest holy day, is they would write a letter to someone they offended that, that, that year. Okay, that's a good thing. Would anybody disagree with that? That's a nice thing to do. If you haven't been talking with your dad all year, you call him up and you make up with him. That's a reconciliation. That's a great thing. There's a big difference between that and the high priest of Israel making an animal sacrifice for his sins and then going into the Holy of Holies and making a sacrifice for the sins of the people. There's a big difference between that and writing a letter to somebody that you offended. And the reason why those sacrifices are done away with is because of what that table represents. Jesus Christ is the high priest, and Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. And if you get that wrong, your theology goes on all kinds of different circles. There are so many Christians who know more about their favorite athletic team. Whatever city it is, I don't care if you like hockey or baseball or football or indoor soccer or ladies basketball, whatever it is. They know more about their favorite teams than they do about the Word of God. Do you think that that's wise? There's nothing wrong with knowing, you know, how well the Pirates or the Steelers or the Browns do. There's nothing wrong with that or the Yankees. There's nothing wrong with that, but I think we should have our priorities in a little bit better order. I think knowing God's will is a lot more important than knowing who's going to go to the Super Bowl and does it really matter? I'm urging you to become people who can know. Who are able to make decisions based upon the Word of God. Who can be people of discernment who know when something comes through the, the door of the TV or the teaching that this is a wolf. It looks nice, but it's, it's a wolf. And who are able to walk away. And then are able to teach other, less mature Christians how to avoid the wolves. Are you able to do that? If not, you can. It just takes time, prayer, and study. Become the type of people who can know them by their fruits. Lord, we ask for this supernatural spiritual wisdom that can only come from you. We ask this in the precious name of our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.